Welcome to the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcast. I'm Liz Warner. This is your chance to get to know some of the players, makers, and thinkers coming together for a spectacular weekend in beautiful Pasadena. On today's podcast, we'll talk to Steve Berlin about his 40 years playing saxophone with East L.A. legends Los Lobos. We don't really rehearse anymore. We figured out a long time ago that we like almost everything better if we don't have to prepare for it. Then we'll get a quick Spanish lesson from Shelley Backler from Friends of the Los Angeles River. Arroyo Seco means dry creek, so it's a seasonal waterway. And Chef Molly Engelhart from Sage Vegan Bistro reveals what really motivated her to open her plant-based restaurants. I had been a pot grower for a lot of years, and my brother-in-law had just gone to prison for pot. So stick around for all that and more on this episode of the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcast. Thanks for listening. mid-1970s in East Los Angeles, Los Lobos' blend of rock and roll and traditional Latino music first began to gain widespread attention with their 1983 EP and A Time to Dance. That record was co-produced by saxophonist Steve Berlin of rockabilly band The Blasters. Berlin joined Los Lobos full-time in 1984 and has been with the group ever since. We spoke with him from his home in Portland, Oregon, to find out how the band has thrived for nearly four decades. I came from a band that were much more um, confrontational about how they solved issues. Uh, these guys have always been very relaxed about almost everything. I mean, very few things rise to the level of a calamity. And we've had a few calamities over the years, but a lot of times we just time them out. You know, they, they fix themselves if you don't do anything for a couple of months. So it's kind of always been the approach. With influences that range from rock, country, zydeco folk, and blues to cumbia, boleros, and norteños, it's safe to say that Los Lobos has actually exhibited a fair amount of variation over their 14 studio albums. But no matter what mixture of musical styles inspires a specific record, it always has a distinct Los Lobos sound. That was even true of their recent cover of the Shin's song, The Fear, which was released this year on Record Store Day. James lives here in Portland, and we see each other socially every now and again. So he wrote this song called The Fear, and he said um, he was thinking about us when he wrote it. I guess he's a fan. And he sent it to us and said, you know, would you guys do your thing to it? And it really came out. I mean, everybody loved it. I mean, we loved it. They loved it. So we, the one and only live performance of it was at the Rosico last year. Dave, Louie, and I were there, and we played with them on their set, which was really amazing. Los Lobos also performed as a full band at last year's Stagecoach Country Music Festival, a testament to the diverse audience they've built through the years playing shows, even while their approach to touring is different from most bands. We've never actually toured the way that most bands tour, which is months and months on end, and you're stuck in a bus, and you know you see the same faces every day, all day, all night, generally. So 
the longest we've ever ever gone out I think was like four weeks and that was only like a handful of times and um, so we, we kind of realized that for our sanity it's best that we take each other in smaller doses. Those small doses still add up. Los Lobos has played well over 1,000 shows in their career, a vast majority of which were in the United States. From on stage, the band has witnessed the country evolve over the past 40 years, becoming a far more diverse nation than it was when they started back in the 1980s. When there's a large Hispanic population, those shows tend to be a little different than places where there isn't. But these days, the, the places where there isn't is actually getting smaller and smaller, like Hispanic constituency pretty much everywhere in the world now. Even we were in Arkansas the other day, and it was like a whole giant Hispanic outreach thing going on. So it's kind of funny that once upon a time, we showed up a place we were the only, and I say this as, you know, I'm not Latino, but I have to speak in that generality. You know, we were the only Latinos there. Now it's everywhere. It's kind of cool and awesome. And the same way ethnic diversity has increased, so has the diversity of ages at a Los Lobos concert. You know, you'll see grandma and, and the kids and, you know, like th- three or four generations of people there. And you kind of, we know then, okay, well, this is, they're here to hear La Bamba. So we sort of, we will steer this, the show in that direction to make sure they don't go home unhappy. And what about that 1987 surprise hit from the movie of the same name? That one that made Los Lobos superstars, if only for a summer. I mean, you think about it. There was first-time director, no stars, about a Hispanic kid who wrote 18 songs and then died in a plane crash. I mean, this really doesn't seem like if you want a recipe for success, that's probably not it. But it happened, you know, hit at the exact right time. And, you know, we went from playing the, you know, relatively small clubs of the world to opening for you 2 for a summer. And while Los Lobos has never reached those stadium-sized audiences again, they've earned something far more valuable as a band. We've created a family in and around our, our, our own family and our own touring, so that's, that's always pretty gratifying, you know, just to know that, that there's this tribe of, of friends and family out there kind of everywhere we go. Los Lobos performs on Sunday, June 24th, at a Royal Seco weekend in Pasadena. Friends of the Los Angeles River is an organization that uses education, outreach, and advocacy to raise awareness of the Los Angeles River and to promote stewardship of it through Los Angeles. So we want a swimmable, fishable, boatable, bikeable Los Angeles River. That's Shelley Backler, the Vice President of Programs for Friends of the Los Angeles River. Though most people might only recognize it as 48 miles of concrete channel before it was paved over in the 1930s, the Los Angeles River was a natural waterway that made its way from the mountains to the coast. You know, the Tongva Indians lived here for centuries, and when the Portola expedition came through, They stopped at the confluence of the Arroyo Seco and the Los Angeles River, and Father Juan Crespi describes it as a beautiful place, wildlife, water. And it's the reason why Los Angeles, our downtown, is where it is, because of that confluence between the L.A. River and the Arroyo Seco. 250 years later, Friends of the Los Angeles River is working to restore as much of the river as possible to what Father Crespi saw when he first laid his eyes on it. 
removing concrete from the entire river is not feasible. But the Army Corps and the city have actually studied the river, the flow, the the angle, the gravity, and have determined that there are some places that concrete can come out. So for us, we want a river that is functional for humans and habitat. So a place where wildlife and people can coexist. That is really important, not just for wildlife, but also for water quality because wetlands clean water naturally. The first successful revitalization of the L.A. River can be seen in the Glendale Narrows that run from the northeast corner of Griffith Park southwest along the 5 Freeway to Elysian Park. A bike path runs the full seven-mile stretch, while a smaller portion of the Narrows even allows for kayaking trips, complete with wildlife and rapids. The next phase of revitalization, which will continue all the way downtown, is scheduled to take place over the next 10 years. And while pavement is replaced by plants and animals, Shelley and her team are working to raise awareness of the L.A. River through educational programs, including the River Rover, which will be on-site at Arroyo Seco. Friends of the Los Angeles River has created a 38-foot mobile visitor and education center that we call the L.A. River Rover. And we literally had a a 38-foot RV created just for us um, that we can bring the river to the people. So we go to schools and we go to festivals. Royal Seiko weekend is perfect for what we do with. And so the River Rover is essentially three 10-foot galleries dedicated to the past, present, and potential future of the L.A. River. Imagine walking into any visitor center at any national park. We have a projector. We have a 40-inch television monitor on the outside. So we have the ability to show films, to do presentations, to have slideshows, and really focus on what are the plans for the L.A. River and the Arroyo Seco confluence? So that is something that would be featured and still have that background of why is the river why it is and what's going on now, what can be. Be sure to bring the kids to check out the River Rover at Arroyo Seco weekend. say that I have a comfort food restaurant, but I don't make vegan food. I don't like vegan food and I don't make vegan food. I make delicious food that happens to not have meat or dairy in it. That chef Molly Engelhart, founder, CEO, and head chef at Sage Vegan Bistro. Whatever you call it, millions of people are turning to an animal-free diet as a way to improve their health and the health of the environment. The numbers don't lie. Sales of plant-based food in the U.S. increased by over 8% in 2017, topping $3.1 billion, according to a Nielsen report. That's great news, especially for someone like Chef Molly, who grew up vegan long before it was a common way to eat. I remembered being that kid at the McDonald's birthday party with her, like, raspberry oatmeal bar or whatever, and being like, I just want some of that cake over there that the other kids are having. That childhood longing for sweets inspired Molly's first foray into the food business, a vegan ice cream shop in Studio City called Kind Cream. When it opened in 2010, Kind Cream was one of the first all-vegan ice cream shops in the city. 
If you've been to any food events in recent years, you'll know that delicious vegan ice cream is now in abundance. I grew up eating vegan ice cream and there was very few options and it was all soy based and it was all kind of crystally and icy. But as all the allergies came into the world, all these different kinds of milks became available. And so eventually more products that chefs could work with came on the market. And even my ice cream is significantly better now than it was in 2010 when we opened in Studio City. We are now using a dehydrated coconut milk. That product didn't exist 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. As the world is becoming more open to vegan options or more people are allergic to dairy or having allergies, there's all these new options coming, which give chefs more tools to work with. Those tools have also included new products like the Impossible Burger, which is being offered all over L.A., but you won't find it served at Sage. It's a good gateway for people if it's something that resembles meat. If you see my menu, there's almost nothing that's trying to be anything that it is not. I mean, we might say buffalo cauliflower wings, but we're clear. I don't have any fake meat. Like I have jackfruit seasoned like carnitas or I have buffalo cauliflower, but everything is just the food as it is seasoned in some way that's familiar to people in other ways. You might think that growing up vegan, Molly doesn't know how delicious meat and dairy can be. You'd be wrong to make that assumption. In my 20s, I tried a bite of a hamburger and I tried a little piece of chicken on a grilled Caesar chicken salad. I thought that meat was going to be like that the heavens were going to open up because people love meat. Like people, when you, people take it personally that I cook without meat, like no meat, like, oh my God. And so I thought like there was going to be like a choir singing. Like I just don't, I expected like I had really high expectations of meat. I was vegetarian, vegan on and off for probably 10 uh, plus years of my life. So I I know how good Haagen-Dazs is. I've, I've had it. <laughs> Honey vanilla Haagen-Dazs is delicious. I understand that. Another thing Molly understands is how awesome it is to make delicious dishes using almost all local ingredients and then serve them to festival crowds from Indio to a Royal Seco. I think it's practically a miracle that you have organic tortilla chips handmade here on site with nacho cheese made out of cashews that were grown in China and cabbage that was pickled in Culver City and grown in Oxnard and jalapenos that were grown in Oxnard and garlic aioli made with veganese that was made in Canoga Park and lemons that were grown in Fillmore, blended together with garlic grown in Gilmore. And now it's all been assembled for you to eat. Oh, and black beans and brown rice that were grown in South or Central America all have been compiled into a plate for you in the middle of a desert, in the middle of a dust storm, on a biodegradable plate with a biodegradable fork. Like, I pretty much think that's a miracle for $16. With restaurants in Echo Park, West L.A., and Old Town Pasadena, Chef Molly is building a mini empire around Los Angeles. If that's not enough, her family owns several vegan spots you've probably heard of. My father and my brothers own and run Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre. So we're kind of like the vegan mafia. We own all the vegan restaurants. And would Chef Molly like to see Sage keep growing? I used to have dreams of conquering the world. And since I've had children, I have dreams of a five 
eight-day work week, which is not something that chefs get. Um, yeah, I, I'm okay with not conquering the world and just feeding people here in Los Angeles. You can try a taste of Sage Vegan Bistro yourself all weekend long at a Royal Seco weekend. That's it for this episode of the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcast. Tune in to other episodes of the podcast to hear more stories about the talented people who help make Arroyo Seco a weekend you won't want to miss. Go to ArroyoSecoWeekend.com for tickets and information, and we hope to see you in Pasadena. This podcast was produced for Golden Voice by Content Curious.